This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. One of my uh, kickoff interviews here, Carol, was with Bruce Flatt. He's the CEO of Brookfield Asset Management. Many people haven't heard of it or they think of them as maybe a landlord. $350 billion in assets under management uh, around the world. I asked him about his outlook for the private equity environment. Here's what he had to say. It feels like these guys, you, sense a lot of opportunity in this rather turbulent world that we're living in. The environment, there's always opportunity and uh, there's a lot of um, consternation in politics and things out there, but uh, the world's generally in a pretty good place right now. The economies of the world are either good or they're actually, some of them are improving. Now, there's a few going down and not quite as good as last year, but on balance, if you look back over many, many years, it's pretty good in the world, in the environment. So in the news, obviously, is Brexit maybe happening, maybe not happening, maybe happening soon, maybe not. You're a huge landowner, landlord uh, there in London, Canary Wharf specifically. How do you how do you play all this? Look, this is a long game. We invest for many, many years. Uh, we make investments assuming you're going to have issues when you go through it. This one just happens to be political. Um, we just don't pay attention to the short-term news. It will be what it will be. We assume everything will work out in the long term, and I'm quite positive it will um, in one direction or the other. And, uh, and I think London is a great place, a great global place to invest, and it will be for a long, long period of time. And have you seen any change in your business in the in the run-up to uh, Brexit? In fact, not a lot. In fact, the, the underlying fundamentals of most of the businesses we have, which are $20, $30 billion of businesses, are um, pretty good. So I, I, we haven't seen a lot of change um, yet. There has been some, but not uh, significant. In fact, some are doing better than they were uh, years ago. Uh, you and I were just on stage together in front of an audience, and, w- and one of the things you mentioned was across your asset class, infrastructure, private equity, real estate. You've raised about $50 billion in this uh, latest round. There's $1.7 trillion in private equity alone out there. How, how worried are you about sort of the amount of money chasing deals at this moment? Look, our, um, I'd say our advantages are operating people, our global nature, and the scale of our business. And when you're trying to do value things, uh, like we do, it's those three things combined that um, can give us an advantage. I, I just, we don't see an issue with putting that scale of money to work. Um, I don't know if there's too much money in the world for what other people do, but given the franchise we have and given what we do globally, uh, we can put that money to work prudently and earn the returns that we need to earn for our constituents. So as you talk to your team back in New York, around the world, in London, you've got some team here. As you talk to your colleagues here, what's the biggest thing people are worried about as we go through 19? What are you most worried about? Look, we're 10 years into a cycle. At some point, the cycle isn't going to be as good as it is today. It always turns. Um, 
Um, they have not been repealed. So that's number one. Number two is interest rates. Um, interest rates, if they go up a lot, it's um, that's an issue just with all asset classes. And we don't think that's going to be the case. But those are, are two um, things that we worry about that aren't really controllable. Now, we control some things. We can finance our businesses as prudently as possible. We can ensure anything we buy we know is going to go through a recession at some point in time, but you can't control everything. Uh, given all that we've talked about, are you a net buyer or a net seller in the world right now? You know, last year we uh, invested $35 billion. We sold $12. Um, this year, I bet we'll, we may sell more than that. I don't know we'll invest that much. Last year was a bigger year. So um, we, we're always a net buyer and a net seller. I would say on balance, we're more conservative than we were a number of years ago. Yeah, Carol, that, that last Those numbers are fascinating, weird. right? Yeah. Uh, unbelievable. I mean, huh. investing $35 billion, selling 12 I do get the sense from Flat and others that they are selling more and more. I'll, I'll tell you one thing that happened mm. uh, that caught a lot of people's attention was David Rubenstein, our sometime colleague, he has mm-hmm. the David Rubenstein show, of course. He was interviewing Leon Black of Apollo, and he pointed out that Leon Black said four years, three, four years ago, to sell everything, that they were trying to sell everything that wasn't nailed down. And, uh, and David Rubenstein basically said, might have done that a little too early. And <laughs> Leon Black conceded that point. It was really yeah. interesting because, to Bruce Flatt's point just there, we are 10 years into this cycle. I mean, you know, we're, we're about to be in the longest bull run in history. Well, think about how many conversations we've had over the last few years about, okay, it's time, this cycle's going to come to an end, like, yeah. right? I mean, I would say, safe to say that coming off that crisis, we all knew it was going to be very easy money for a long time, and we needed to see if the system was kind of getting back to normal. But I will say, right, I feel like every year, for the last two or three years, we've started off the year saying, okay, this is going to be the year we get a correction, this is the year when things start to come undone, and here we are. And it... it- didn't really strike me as much as it, it, it as it did this week for a, for a long time that selling too soon is is one of the real dangers for these private equity guys because they talk so much about yeah. we can hold for a long time we can be patient but sometimes you need well, to be even a little more patient because there's yeah. they're going to leave money on the table yeah it's fascinating right and we also hear these stories about all these private equity guys right they continue to raise new funds and yeah. new, you know so there's more money coming in that they've got to put to work because ultimately that's what they've got to do. Well, the number that kept coming up, it depended on who you asked. It was it's either one point two trillion or one point seven trillion dollars in so called dry powder. That's committed capital from big investors to private equity funds. And you know, most people, including including Q uh, Sung Lee, who we're going to hear from later in the show, said, "No, it'll be fine. We're going to be able to put that money to work. Not a problem. It's still a lot of money." Human League. Oh my God! Sorry, wrong song. All right. Anyway, more importantly, I could hear that in a club here in Berlin. (laughs) You could totally. Uh, Let's talk about shares of Celgene selling off today. Down, I think, uh, more than seven percent of this hour. I'll check the ticker in just a moment. But uh, this is after activist investor Starboard Value said it will vote against the record seventy-four billion dollar pharmaceutical merger between it and Bristol Myers Squibb. Let's talk about what happened. Scott Devoe is Dill's reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. So I was. Kidding with you, not so kidding with you. Deals reporter, it's hard to beat because you never get any sleep. you got to always be ready. Um, was this a bit of a surprise? 
Uh, no, it wasn't. I think okay. um, we we kind of knew that Starboard was in here. We we weren't entirely sure when they were going to go public, but or if they were going to go public. Um, but certainly, we were aware that uh, they were in the stock. They had nominated five directors, so the assumption was that at some point they would go public. And let's talk about the Wellington uh, aspect of, of this, Scott, because that really caught a lot of people's attention. I think big deal, not a big deal. Huge deal. I, yeah. I don't think Wellington's ever been public about um, a position like this coming out against a They're deal. They're really a quiet firm. Yeah. I mean, I don't... They have I, a trillion I, dollars, by the way. Yeah. I, I could be wrong, but I don't think they've ever done this before. And so what we're seeing now uh, is these traditionally, you know, passive investors uh, going public. Uh, they had to file a 13D, which means that, you know, they're now an active investor. They can talk to other shareholders, try to persuade them of their, you know, their position. Um, but yeah, I would say it's a huge deal. It's an, you all, you an almost unprecedented, sort of, I would say. You almost sort of imagine this situation, Scott, where, where there are a bunch of lawyers and investment uh, relations folks being like, wait, how do we do this? <laughs> you know, like, well, the is, good thing is they've hired work? they've hired the right law firm to help them. So there meaning you go. what? Meaning what? They've hired Schulte, which is oh uh, my goodness, which there is, is an activist uh, a firm. So okay, so how do you anticipate from the folks that you're talking to, Scott, that this will proceed? What's next? So what I would expect then, uh, obviously, Starboard's going to go pound the pavement, um, try to convince shareholders that this deal is not in the best interest of Bristol holders. Obviously, Bristol will be doing the same. Um, but what basically will come to is um, Starboard said that they're going to file a proxy against the deal, which means they're going to, on April 12th, when this uh, this shareholder vote happens, shareholders have a choice to vote against the deal or for the deal mm-hmm. um and uh if they vote down the deal uh obviously you know it's dead um and then more than that what they've done is they've also ele- uh, nominated five directors so th- after the shareholder vote on the deal this thing isn't done because now they could face a proxy at the agm which is typically held in may so it's a, it's going to be a bit of a long road for them does this remind you of any other sort of situations you've seen of late? Obviously, this is a very high-profile deal, Scott, but, but give us some some context here. Well, I mean, obviously, it has echoes of uh, the Cigna Express Grip yes. deal. Um, Icon arrived. Carl Icon um, kind of showed up at the last minute on that and get, kind of gave a half uh, hearted effort to try to break up the deal. I think I would call it a half-hearted effort <laughs> because uh, you know typically you don't disclose your position two weeks before because you need to get out and in front of shareholders and you know file paperwork and all that stuff. Um, but it essentially, it was the same thing. Um, I think he his criticism was that Express Scripts. I think he called it a, a melting ice cube. Um, and in this situation, Starboard um, is saying that Celgene uh, has some issues. Obviously, their their number one drug uh, is going to face some um, patent issues in 2020, mm-hmm. and that accounts for 60 percent of the revenue. So um, the the bet here for Bristol is that the, somehow they're going to replace that. And as uh, why would you want the company then? Well, that's sixty percent. That's is that? Am I missing some math here? <laughs> the the hope is that the pipeline that they have will replace that. But yeah, but that takes um, time. Yeah, and and that's what Starboard's saying. So just quickly, thirty seconds left here. If this comes undone, are there people kind of circling to maybe who might be interested in Celgene? Well, I think or that's what Bristol. I think. 
uh, Starboard's hope is that somebody will be interested in Bristol, but we've already seen Pfizer and Merck and others say that they're not interested in doing some big M&A. Now, obviously, there's other players out there, so it remains to be seen, and maybe that'll change in a formal sales process, but it remains to be seen. All right, interesting stuff. Scott DeVoe, Deals Reporter. I have to say just very quickly, Scott DeVoe knows exactly what we were talking about in the break, which is mm-hmm. Brookfield is a massive, massive company. He's followed them <laughs> more closely than anyone. And we were talking about Bruce Flatt earlier, uh, Scott, and you know that whole story very, very well. It's an amazing company. Absolutely. Scott DeVoe, Deals Reporter, Man About Town. We appreciate it, as always, on this Activist Thursday. I'm out in the cold. That's how it felt today when President Trump abruptly uh, seemed to leave those uh, talks with North Korea. That's one thing that was going on. So we've got that going on. But even more importantly, too, we've kind of got U.S. and China. You're wondering if one of them are going to be left out in the cold when it comes to a new trade deal. So let's get into this with our Sean Donnan, who had a moment to think about what happens between specifically, really, the United States and China and what might be the broader global trade implications on a system that's been in place for a long time. It is this week's remarks in the current issue of the magazine on newsstands now on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. Sean Donnan is senior trade and globalization reporter at Bloomberg News. He is in our Bloomberg 991 studio in Washington, D.C., I already told you this earlier. I love this story because I do feel like you take a a step back and say, okay, what happens with the U.S.-China negotiations specifically might have bigger implications when it comes to trade around the globe. What's up? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the interesting things is we're so focused on will they or won't they cut a deal that sometimes we're forgetting about the consequences of a deal. And these are consequences that aren't just there for uh, the U.S. and China. That's clearly important. These are the world's two largest economies. But for the rest of the world, and it's good to hear Jason's in Berlin because that's one of the places where they really worry about this stuff. Um, it is uh, the, in Europe and in Japan uh, and in countries like Australia. Uh, they are looking at what the U.S. and China are negotiating, and particularly the, the kind of commodities purchase side of it and getting ready for an impact on their own exports to China uh, in particular and wondering what that's going to do to reshape trade flows. So that's a kind of the at-home impact for a lot of these countries. And then there's this question about the system. Um, The U.S., pretty much since the 1930s, has been pushing this idea that uh, if we set rules and let the market get get to work, that that is the fairest trading system uh, the world can have. And um, that means getting away from this kind of transactional approach to trade. Donald Trump clearly has a very different view of that. We've learned that over the last two years. Uh, And here with China, they're talking about very specific purchases, something like $1.2 trillion in purchases over five or six years. Uh, And that is going to have a real impact and some feel undermine that existing system. Well, and Sean, you're 100% right about it being very front of mind here in Germany, because as you say, you know, this is an, eco- this is an economy right here uh, that is having its own sort of existential crisis of a sort uh, and trying to figure out uh, its place in the world. And amid all of the or among all the, the private equity investors I've been speaking with this week, they sort of dismiss candidly like the North Korea U.S. Uh, situation. They obviously, and maybe not surprisingly, dismiss everything that's going on in your backyard in Washington with Michael Cohen testifying. And yet you get to trade and specifically U.S.-China, and they sit up and say, well, that could be a problem. 
Yeah. And it's, you know, I mean, it's a problem if we have a trade war. Let's be clear about that. There's a lot of people in the world who, who worry, and we've heard this from the IMF and, and pretty much any economist you talk to will say one of the biggest threats to the global economy uh, this year is the threat of the U.S.-China uh, trade war escalating and unraveling. Uh, and so a deal would be a bad thing. But at the same time, a deal would also have consequences, and we need to think about that. So I, one of the things I thought that was really interesting in your reporting, Sean, too, is you talked about this concept or idea of managed trade. And this is something that many of uh, the trading partners around the world, U.S. trading partners around the world, are a little bit worried that maybe that's where the U.S. is moving more closer to. And that's the big philosophical departure here. So the idea of free trade is that idea that I described earlier. Uh, you set rules. You kind of uh, get a level playing field or as close to it as you can, you can in the world. And you let the market go to work. And the market decides uh, where soybeans are going to come from, where natural gas is going to come from, where you're going to buy this stuff. Uh, and it's always been a very American response uh, to some of the state-planned economies out there, uh, the Soviet Union uh, during the Cold War and China more recently. Uh, the U.S. is not a place that in the past has, has liked to intervene too heavily uh, or too directly in the markets. But Donald Trump is taking a very different approach here by literally in this deal that they're working out, they're doing line-by-line -line kind of purchase targets for commodities, soybeans, natural gas, aircraft, you guys are going to buy this much. And that implies a much bigger role for the Chinese state in managing the trade with the United States with a goal of kind of managing down this great trade surplus that the Chinese have with, uh, with America. That is a real philosophical departure for an American president to make. Well, and Sean, one of the other things you point out that, that I thought was really important is the fact that profits of U.S. companies, companies we know, have already been hurt by these discussions and the fear that something uh, is happening. How does that play out from, from what you've seen and the people you've talked to? Yeah. So, again, there is, you know, we think of uh, often of, of the relationship, the economic, economic relationship as one is a, the trade in physical goods. Well, the reality is a lot of American companies, and we saw this with Apple and its profit warning in December, yeah. uh, that are heavily dependent on profits from China, which is this enormous market that's been growing uh, very fast in, in, in recent years. And you're seeing that there in Germany. One of the big reasons you've had a, a kind of slowdown in the German economy is the slowdown in demand uh, from China. So, you know, trade wars have consequences. Uh, we've already seen that. Uh, and, you know, we're going to see more ahead. Yeah, I just wonder just quickly, 30 seconds here, Sean, I think about our audience who's listening, um, investors out there. Uh, the concerns are what ultimately? Just that the U.S. becomes more isolated? There's that. And, you know, there's a kind of beggar thy ally approach. It's a <laughs> phrase I use in the piece uh, to this. But that is also going to have economic consequences for other parts of the world. Uh, Europe, could this feed uh, the slowdown in the Eurozone and in Germany like that? Uh, Barclays was out with a report last week uh, pointing to a $55 billion hit on uh, EU exports uh, from a potential deal between the U.S. and China. That's just in kind of lost exports to China. That's real. That's something like two, two and a half percent of the EU's total exports now. That's a, a consequential impact. Sean Donnan, our trade guru, he's got the opening remarks in this week's magazine on newsstands soon. You can look at it right now on Bloomberg.com and on 
the Bloomberg Terminal. Sean, you're a busy man. Thanks for making some time for Carol and myself. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master along with Jason Kelly right here on Bloomberg Radio. And in Berlin, here in Berlin, Carol, I caught up with Mike Arigetti. We've had him on the show before. Mm-hmm. He runs Aries. He's the second generation, as it were, uh, running that firm. They do a lot of private credit. So he's got an interesting perspective on where uh, all this money is going. Take a listen. What's the mood around here? The mood here is unbelievably positive. Um, We've all been to conferences where there's a distinct, distinct tone. Uh, I was on a panel this morning and people said, is this the best of times or the worst of times? And I'd say generally people feel really good. And why is that? Like, what is is it underlying economics? Is it deal flow? What's happening? It's all of that. Uh, Number one, U.S. economy is on unbelievably strong fundamental footing. So I think people's portfolios are performing well. Returns are coming in the way they want to. Liquidity in the asset class is good. Um, One thing we talked about this morning that I also think is interesting, the growth generally in the private markets is now outpacing the growth in the public markets for the first time in 20 years. So I think there's also a distinct shift that despite whatever uncertainties exist, that the secular trend into the private markets is something that's going to sustain. And what do you think catalyzed that, that sort of growth, that sort of, that inflection point? shift? Yeah. It was noticeable post-crisis, and and in all the conversations I have with our investors, both retail and institutional, my sense is coming out of the financial crisis, most people realized that they had completely misvalued liquidity, i.e. they had factored in the fact that they'd be able to go into the market, get liquidity at a price they wanted, and when they realized, when they went into the market, there was liquidity, but not at the price they expected, and actually hurt return. So we've seen a meaningful shift into illiquid assets and a willingness on the part of most investors to actually take illiquidity risks so long as you're getting paid for it. All right. So you guys were early to that market at Aries, especially the private credit market. How competitive is it getting with other people around this around these halls sort of nipping at your heels. It's funny. I was here six years ago when they first did their private credit summit. Uh, I delivered the keynote address in a 10 by 10 room. I thought it was the green room where I was speaker prepping, and it turned out to be the the main event. And now, six years later, you have the the full day, full full ballroom, and it's really emerged as an asset class unto itself. Um, Like any asset class, as it develops and evolves, more people are in it. Competition increases, but that's the natural evolution. Um, I'm not experiencing that competition as compromising the return opportunity in in those asset classes. I think a lot of the people who are allocating tend to be smaller first-time funds with a little bit more of a focused strategy to what we pursue at Aries. And still the appetite, a hearty appetite on the part of institutional investors for this specific uh, type Without of asset? Doubt. In addition to the illiquidity uh, appetite coming out of the financial crisis, the other thing that there's an insatiable appetite for globally is yield. And when you look at private credit, whether you're talking about corporate lending or real estate lending or structured and asset-backed credit, the opportunity to generate current yield, senior-secured, floating rate is very, very attractive to investors, and I don't expect that to change. How much do you worry about interest rates rising? I worry if they're rising for the wrong reasons. Uh, Obviously, when rates are going up because the economy is fundamentally sound, that's constructive for credit. It means that earnings are are moving in the right direction. Uh, About 80% of the credit assets that we manage at Aries are floating rate. So again, generally, when interest rates go up, our returns go up. 
The mitigant and offset to that is obviously if rates go up too fast or too much, it constrains cash flow and ultimately could lead to, to stress. So it's something we keep an eye on, but I'd say on balance, it's actually a positive for our business. Biggest worry for 2019 going forward? Oh boy. Um, I just feel there's so much geopolitical uncertainty and movement. And when you saw what happened in Q4 of 2018, that technical shock that, that worked its way through the market, albeit short-lived, I think was a great reminder that the markets, just based on their structure and tone, are still a little fragile under the surface. So from my standpoint, I can't point to anything specifically, but there's still enough risk of an exogenous shock that as a credit manager we have to be thinking about. Just briefly, because you mentioned the end of uh, 2018, that was a big shock, the it Christmas was. Eve yeah. shock, but it seems so long ago now. Are we due for another one? I don't know. I, I, I kind of hope so. It was a little bit of an appetite. Um, those are the types of markets where Aries actually performs the best. You know, when the retail investor is moving out of the market, when the daily liquidity is is having assets traded value below their intrinsic value, that's when Aries can come in and really be a liquidity provider into those markets. So it was an enjoyable couple of months, uh, and it's now since recovered. So you could use a little more volatility. I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind. A little more volatility. It's funny, you know, to hear him say that. I think we're going to hear from Joe Brad a, a little bit later on, uh, I think maybe in the week. And he said the same thing, like, little volatility wouldn't be the worst thing that happened. I mean, these guys do – that's where they make their money. Well, think about how many folks we've talked to, investment professionals, who said, I was buying in December because names that I was interested – or that I were interest, was interested in, all of a sudden they became on sale, right? The, the price was so much cheaper, so it was an opportunity to kind of buy into a position, certainly on the equity side of things. I did find it interesting, too, that Mike said, you know, stressed concerns about geopolitical risks. Yep. And I feel like there are so many of them out there right now, from Brexit to North Korea to U.S.-China trade. Uh, the list is long. My favorite thing that he said was uh, close to the top when he, he was talking about when he first gave a private credit presentation uh, here at this conference. And he walked into the room and he thought he was in the green room because there were so <laughs> few people there. Um, and oh, he thought, no. oh, wait, wait, where am I supposed to talk to everybody? And they said, no, this is it. And now there's a, <laughs> literally an entire day of the conference yeah. uh, that's uh, devoted just to private credit. So that shows you uh, how far that market has come. And, you know, right. to their credit, to Aries' credit, this is the firm that Tony Ressler founded coming out of Apollo. Uh, they were there first. You had a lot of big names, you know, the likes of Blackstone and others really getting in, into that in a more meaningful way. Well, the investment market, the opportunities, the way you play it, right, has continued to evolve. Just think about when junk bonds were initially introduced way back when with Michael Milk, and they were considered right. exotic. And now right. they're... Like, what is that? Now they're just kind of part of a normal way of doing business. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. 
Yes, indeed, it is time for the drive to the close on this Thursday afternoon. I'm Carol Master in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Jason Kelly out there in Berlin, who will make his way back home here to New York tomorrow. Uh, and also with me in our Bloomberg Interactive studio, Rick Bensignor. He's president of the firm that bears his own name, and he made his way, as I mentioned, to our studio. Nice to have you here, finally. We've done some stuff on the phone. You know, I've known each other a long time. Um, nice to be back in the studio. It's been a while. Yeah, it's great to have you here. So tell us a little bit about this market environment. Uh, Jason and I spend so much time. Uh, there's a lot of big macro stories. Jason's been at this big uh, VC and private equity conference, the world's biggest out there in Berlin. And some of the folks he's talking to, all the big firms, you know, geopolitical concerns are front and center. How do you see it right now? Well, there's certainly geopolitical concerns, but I've got to say they're much greatly reduced than they were a few months ago. Not everything's gone. Of course, Brexit's still an issue. Um, President Trump ending his meeting earlier than expected with Korea at least still has that somewhat on the table. But it's nothing like it was six months ago or a year ago when we were really concerned that rockets could be coming our way. So I think geopolitical concerns um, are always a valid, uh, not tailwind, a wind, headwind for the market. But things are definitely better than they were. And I think the market has responded in in the last two months to that. And so, Rick, what about trade? Because that seems to be less geopolitical and more sort of geoeconomic in a way. And and we were talking earlier in the show about the fact that, you know, some of the investors I've been talking to, they're they're taking a a lot of what you're saying uh, to heart about the sort of straight political stuff. But that trade bugaboo seems to uh, still sort of stick in their minds. Well, look, Agree? I, I, I'm not a big Donald Trump fan as president, but I got to tell you, I do at least give him credit for doing what other presidents have not been able to do, mm-hmm. and that is finally tackle this trade imbalance with China. And of course, it's not a done deal yet, but he already got the soybean deal done. Uh, it looks like, or at least sounds like, things are progressing towards the right way. And, you know, often the final negotiation, when things are done, if both parties aren't happy, it's actually usually a successful uh, meeting because it's, it's rare to you find. You lose a little bit, I lose a little exactly. bit. Exactly. That's the only way this is going to get solved. So I think that China fully understands that they can no longer do what they had done in the past uh, and take such advantage of the U.S., And so some of these trade deals, whatever they ultimately end up being, should help us and help the economy and, you know, help the U.S. grow. And, and, you know, if if it's not so good for China, I can live with that. I live in America. I care about America's economy. So tell me a little bit about this market environment, right? Big sell-off in December. Now it feels like it never even happened because we've had quite a bounce back. Um, I think people are are trying to figure out, what do I make of the sell-off? What do I make of the bounce back? Where's the economy? Where are corporate profits going? Um, Mix things, right? So I don't know. You need some visibility in order to make some investments. Otherwise, you just park your money in cash. Well, look, I, I think, Carol, that I talk to a lot of institutional PMs and traders all the all day long, and there is a lot of, I'll say, anger and disdain on the street over this rally, and you kind of think about why. Why would PMs typically um, be rooting against the market rally, and why is there so much anger? 
And I think it really all comes down to the fact that the December decline was actually the bottom, the end to a global equity decline that really started in the beginning of 2018. We here in the U.S. don't really see it, mm -hmm. but if you were to look at the, let's say, the Acqui Oral World Index, exclusive, exclusive of the U.S., it peaked early in 2018, and all the models we use said it bottomed in December. And so while Americans and, let's say, the Western world is more thinking about this as far as being, oh, we took out the February low. This mm -hmm. is whole new bear market. And, of course, look, honestly, different pieces of the media pick up on this. The S&P got to 20% down, so the media says bear market. Right. NASDAQ, 23%. So the there. public now all hears bear market, bear market. And the reality was... It was not a bear market. It is not a bear market. And it was the end of what had been a bear market globally, ex-U.S., for the whole year. So by January 7th or 10th or so, we had identified the December, uh, the, the, what I call the Christmas low, as a good bottom. And then less than a week later, we said, you know what? It's not just a good bottom. That is the bottom. That is the bottom to the market. And yet you look at the amount of so, people on the street who have been fighting this rally all the way up. Technicians who said, sell a 38% rally, sell the 50-day, sell the 62%, sell the 200-day. Nothing's worked. So they're all upset and feel like this is a totally manipulated market. The reality is they, they interpreted the December the decline incorrectly. So we just have about 20 seconds left here, Rick. So then in this environment, do you say that from here, I mean, we could have bottomed out. We can stay at this level for a long time. I mean, what's the trajectory from here based on kind of some of the fundamentals that are out there? And you've got to be quick. Okay. I think, I think if the market sells off, we're not going to see more than a 100, max, max 200 point sell off in the S&P. And I don't think either of them are really going to happen. We don't have to take out last year's highs in the next month or two. And even but if the Fed turns again and starts raising rates, let's say, later in the year? We'll, might... we'll have to deal with that later in the year. Hard to say now. All right. Kind of leave it there. Have a great weekend. You too, Carol. Great nice to see you. you. Rick Bensignor, he's uh, president of uh, Bensignor Investment Strategies in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week on this Thursday. Feels like a Friday, but not quite yet. Carol Masser, Jason Kelly. Not yet, Carol. No. <laughs> Feels it, right? Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Yeah.